On today's episode, we tackle how new efforts aim to limit or erase important history and context. From bodies discovered in a former Indian boarding school in Canada, to new legislation banning critical race theory in the wake of the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre, how do we handle the resistance to learning about these important truths? This program is co-production of the Counterstories crew, the other media group, and Amphers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is Counter Story, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros, cultural consultant, and member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinion and viewpoints that I share are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of Arts Us and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. Hilly Lee, who normally is with us, will not be with us. She is on a hard-earned vacation. And, you know, guys, there's been, you know, while there hasn't, well, I can't say that. While there hasn't been, I guess, real, real big headlines, um, and I know a lot of people may disagree with me, but there have been plenty of things happening in uh, the past week or so. And I'm just going to name a few, you know, because I think that that there's all these all these events kind of tie in. And, um, you know, and I know many of us hopefully have been watching on, uh, I know I've been watching on public television, on regular television. Um, Gail King had a special, but, you know, it was uh, the 100-year anniversary of the uh, Tulsa Massacre in Greenwood, Tulsa. Um, and so, you know, we've been watching that. I think in the past week, we heard of um, attempts, I know, in Texas or in the past week or two that pretty much um, makes it illegal for teachers in public schools to use um, critical race theory in education. And, you know, it, and it was, I guess it was pretty creative in how they kind of worded that where, where they're no longer able to talk about any circumstances that makes one member of a race ashamed or make them think they're superior over any other race. So they didn't come right out and use words like white privilege or white superiority. They talked their way around it. And I think the other news that that um, people are talking about is this gruesome discovery of, what was it, I think, 215 Native American kids that yep. were found in a in an unmarked mass grave outside a boarding school, and and I'm not sure which province it was in in Canada. So, you know, there there's this racial reckoning that's happening in this country, and unfortunately, while while many of us are grappling with 
with this because I know in Indian country, and I know many people are have responded to the to this mass grave of of Native American children that were found, and I'm and we know that there are many other Native American children who have disappeared, mysteriously disappeared when they went to boarding schools here in the United States. And then you you look at that, the similarities in terms of what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the fact that, and, and, and no one even has a number on the number of Blacks that were killed in this this riot where white men came and and burned down planes flew over and dropped firebombs on, on Greenwood, Oklahoma. Um, They don't even know how many people died and they're searching for these bodies. And, and um, because I'm well aware that Iowa and three or four other States are all trying to pass similar similar legislation that won't allow us to have the kind of discussions we need to have in this country. One, to reconcile events like we're, you know, that are coming up and and uh and for this country to move forward. So I'm wondering what your guys' thoughts are. Well, the, you know, with ahead, respect ahead, to I'm sorry, with no. respect to the unearthing of these uh, 215 bodies of children who were formerly enrolled as students in in these um, boarding schools. And I should correct myself. It's not enrolled. They were taken. Thank you. I was going to say formally enrolled is the wrong language. Uh, (laughs) No, I I caught myself. I caught myself. Uh, They were forced. They were forced into it against their will. and, And actually many taken by force uh, from their families at gunpoint, as I read the reports. What we need to really understand is that this is a culmination of work that's been done in Canada that we have yet to do in the U.S., which means that in in Canada, at least they had a truth and reconciliation process that I understand occurred where they identified 130 schools, right? And they began to then understand what the issues were and what needed to be done and begin to have, you know, as a, the name of the effort, truth and reconciliation, right? Tell the truth of what happened, how it happened before you begin to start moving past and healing with community. Well, in the U.S., we're nowhere near that. I mean, from my understanding, there have been at least 367 schools, boarding schools identified in the United States. So more than twice the number of those boarding schools found and identified in Canada. We are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of forcing and coming to to the truth that needs to be had, forcing that conversation to take place in the U.S., telling the truth, understanding the atrocities that occurred from beginning to end, from beginning and and snatching these young children from the arms of their parents, forcing them into these schools and the abuse. I mean, the abuse that's been unearthed in the schools in Canada from sexual abuse and uh, rape 
of, of young girls, Indian girls, uh, impregnating young girls, uh, minors, you know, and, and having those difficult conversations that need to be had. Go ahead. I, I, I just, it's, uh, there's, there's a striking correlation between our inability to be honest about this particular history and the project that is in play, trying to position critical race theory as something other than it is. I, I think, I, I think it's important to underscore and I, and I see a direct correlation Right, this this uncovering of camp at the Kamloops uh, Indian School in 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 Canada, which was specifically designed to, as Don, you have have told us over, the purpose of these boarding schools was very specific and extinct. Kill the Indian, save the man was the motto that was was used to justify these schools that would not allow Native folks to practice any of their traditions. Again, washing away. Um, and, and, and trying to to control what a person can or cannot learn that is part of their 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 the heritage and the true history. I think the the attacks on critical race theory are one uh, are, are nefarious for that reason. I, I want to point out that critical race theory itself was um, uh, uh, an argument that came from lawyers with the main. Um, with the core tenets being, one, that racism is socially constructed. Like, this is what critical race theory says, that race is socially constructed, not biologically natural. Two, that racism in the United States is a normed way of being, i.e., it has been part of our entire history throughout. And the third piece um, looks at the to advance and move through a system, there has to be, and we have to take into account the times that we have moved forward has been because we have found a nexus of interest convergence. Um, and then the fourth one that um, we all have um, uh, experienced uh, different racialization, that we all have different experiences based on that race. And then, um, you know, one that we have to be telling counter narratives to the dominant narrative, which does not tell all these stories, which is what we get our name from counter stories. Those are just some of the tenets of critical race theory that say we need to look with a critical eye at the impact of race on lives. This is 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 very purposefully missing from arguments to ban critical race theory, because if they were there, folks would be would say, what is the problem? This is this is us looking with a critical eye on how race has impacted our society. And I think it is being conflated purposefully um, in this conflation with quote unquote shame, right? Because our history is shameful and we need to honor that and move forward and past that. And we've got folks who are trying to use this to distract from other things. I see a very similar project with trying to wipe away our racialized history and experience and the reality of those for the sake of the comfortability of the folks who are unwilling to look at our history, you know, in a real way. And though the project that was trying to erase the cultural understanding and identity of Native peoples through these boarding schools, I see a very deep and clear correlation. And yes, and, and the other part of that, Anthony, is the fact that so much of our society across our country functions on sound bites. Mm -hmm. So the folks are not taking the time to read and understand what you just said, mm -hmm. right? They hear a soundbite, critical race theory is wrong, it's bad, it's harmful, it's divisive, you know, whatever other arguments that folks are putting forth, which are all, you know, inaccurate, right? But there's a, a foundational 
um, willingness to be ignorant of the facts to their own benefit. So folks who don't take the time to read past the headline or do any of the, you know, analytical and, you know, type of discussion or exploration of the material on their own or with folks that are within their circle. So they, they end up having this closed minded mindset as well as a closed minded environment by design and they benefit from it because then they don't have to talk about it and they don't have to be a part of it. Well, you know, I think, uh, I know a, quite a few of the shows that I watched this Memorial Weekend on the, the Tulsa massacre. Um, each one of them pointed out how, how that whole thing was hushed. How Tulsa totally ignored mm-hmm. what had happened. And that, you know, these facts were just coming out again. I mean, you know, I first heard about Tulsa probably about, about 10 years ago. And, um, but just how, you know, it's been hushed. It was shoved underneath the carpet. There uh, has never been any recognition, any acknowledgement by the state, by the city, by the town, or by the dominant culture in terms of what happened. And this is just Tulsa. It, this is, you know, there were other incidents that happened in the Black community. Okoe, the, Rosewood. I mean, there are so many. And, you know, they found these 215 um children at you know at at the boarding school in Canada but I'm sure there are plenty of dead bodies unfortunately of our children throughout the United States at many of these other boarding schools that has been hushed that has been shoved under the carpet and what you know for me the thing that that stands out and and not just that I mean you know this past month was um Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And so I had been I have been watching many programs on public television, and I thought they did a very good job of showing similar type treatment of mass killings of Chinese Americans and other um, Asian descent here in the United States, not only just through immigration, but outright massacre, large killings, similar to, to, uh, to, uh, Greenwood. I mean, we just have to look at what, what, uh, how the United States treated the Japanese during world war II, where they confiscated all their wealth, their homes, their businesses and everything, and put them in detention centers camps throughout the United States. And many of those, unfortunately, were located on Indian reservations. And I mean, so we don't have to look back further than what, 50, 60 years to see that this country has a pattern of treating their indigenous and populations of color in this kind of matter, manner where with mass killings and then covering it up and not talking about it. And when we talk about truth and reconciliation, they still are having that discussion about with the, I think what there's one actual um, descendant 
And she's what, 102, 103 years old. And they still haven't re- uh, done any reconciliation for her or for Tulsa or for the black community in, in, in Greenwood, uh, Oklahoma. And so, you know, yeah, there's been no discussions here in the United States in terms of truth and reconciliation with its indigenous populations or any other group this country abused. I, I, so, Don, I just, you said you said that, you know, we the U.S. has has been hush hush about it. I I would challenge you to go beyond that, which is they've misrepresented it too, because purposely misrepresented the, it. Absolutely, what we we were told, quote unquote, was that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that there was a race riot. And yes. that's what they, that's how they identified it, right? right? That it was a race riot. And in fact, they lied. Not only was it not a race riot, they also lied about who started it. Right. They said that it was a black man who started it. And no, we young... know factually, we know factually that that is inaccurate. We know that it was not started by a, a young 19 year old black man, right? We know that it was not a race riot. We know that it was a massacre. We know that the massacre was started by these white folks, white men in particular, uh, at that time. So, yes, it is. It goes beyond just being hush hush. It's yes. actually lying about it, misrepresenting it altogether, and expecting us to not learn the truth at some time. The fact that it took nearly a hundred years for this really to come to bear because it was just 99 a year ago that the mayor of Tulsa began to understand what was going on based on what I've seen in the documentaries in the last week. And and he was shocked as well. And he said, look, I, you know, I've been, I was born and raised here. My great grandfather was the first mayor, if not one of the first mayors of Tulsa. And none of this was shared with him. And they interviewed, you know, leader after leader saying that none of this was part of it. And the fact that in Tulsa, you are within the school system, the public school system, you're required to take a history course that actually gives you the history of Tulsa. And it was absent from the history books as well. So this, I mean, it's, it is insult after, you know, injury upon insult after injury over and over again, and that up to 300 people, Blacks, were were murdered and put in, in these mass graves that, that, again, is part of this horrific atrocity that no one is being or has been held accountable for. So let me, Anthony, let me ask you a question. Yeah. I mean, I, let, 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 let's think about that because you and I both teach in this area, right? In, mm-hmm. in terms of what we would call critical race theory. And, you know, so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how do we, you know, because the language that they they use down in Texas is that is that you cannot talk about one race or an individual from a particular group that makes members of that group feel responsible and or it makes them think that they're superior better than another group that's essentially what 
you know, they've passed in this legislation mm-hmm. that it, you know, without just coming out and saying, you know, you can't talk about white privilege, you can't talk about white superiority, you know, the things that this very country was built on and the very examples that we've just talked about. So how would we, how would we go about talking about Tulsa in that context? Well, so you wouldn't. And, and, and one of the, um, one of the mechanisms this, and this actually makes sense to me that this is the kind of, of response that is happening from a, a place of a lack of racial consciousness, right? Racial consciousness being this idea that we, un, that we are aware of the various patterns and nuances around how races lived in the United States. And so there are many folks across the country, in fact, a majority of folks across the country that have very little problem having, is, you know, as long as the aim is a functional and, 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 and learning-based, right, growth mindset, um, in a vacuum would not have a problem. I, I encounter folks who are on the opposite side of the, uh, you know, who are, are against critical race theory because the talking points say to be that have been part of my own racial consciousness development series that had no problem engaging in critical discourse. Again, this is critical thinking around, um, you know, the, the, the function of race, what's real on the ground, our data and all that stuff, who had no problem with that, but yet are, are still in support of, of these things. And, and I keep saying this over and over again, that the central mechanism here is looking back at our history and the reality of it and not knowing what to do with the shame that that brings up. This is completely a shame response. That is all that this 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 uh, aversion to critical race theory is, and the one of the ways in which I am I am in, encountering it is is when somebody's you know brings up you know this is are you teaching this critical race theory stuff? My follow up question, and I th- and I share this with a good friend of mine who 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 works in a school district, is what particular part or tenet of critical race theory bothers you? And oftentimes there is no response because the talking points don't go deeper than here's a name of something that you should oppose. This is actually something that's shown up in history many, many times over. It is part of, Don, you you mentioned earlier, the Chinese-American massacre that happened in 1871 when 500 white folks stormed the city's Chinese quarter in Los Angeles. Um, And by the end of the night, 19 mango bodies lay in the streets of Los Angeles. Like it, you know, this is some of the same rhetoric that this thing is what you should fear because this is an other thing as a distraction from what the what was actually happening. And that was Chinese gaining a foothold because they were willing to do the work that other folks weren't. And it was starting to cause culture war. And people used that in order to, to mass folks uh, in opposition. The same was the same process with Okoe. It's the same thing that led to Unfortunately, the federal law in 1891, Congress's authorization to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs to create legal rules requiring Indian children to attend boarding schools. All of this is, again, a a collective distraction to try to say, use a word, some kind of buzzword in order to rally folks and get folks riled up to not focus on the fights that are actually happening. And all of these are happening at moments of consciousness and coalition. I, I got to create those patterns. When, when folks were starting to realize their collective power is often when we see things like this project around critical race theory. So my counter to it has just been to, to ask folks, well, what do you know about critical race theory? What, what are the tenets? What tenet do you have a problem with? Is it 
The fact that racism is persistent, regardless of what we've done, the permanence of racism in it, is it the counter storytelling that says we need to put stories on the table that we haven't been teaching historically, regardless of how, whether or not you feel. I would also argue that if this is the, if the rule in Texas stands, there's going to be a whole lot of folks of color who can sue Texas because all of the history content makes people of color feel uncomfortable because it omits them. So if, when we get to those second and second and third layers of conversation, the, the argument doesn't hold water. And it's just a shame response from folks who are now being forced to confront the real history of the United States. You've been listening to Connor's Stories. I'm Don Eubanks with crew members Luz Marie Freyas and Anthony Galloway. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. Well, to my point earlier, I mean, folks are reacting to it for the reasons you stated, but also the simplicity of it is it has race and it's a theory. And it's been widely, you know, <laughs> promoted on conservative talk radio and television uh, network stations about how harmful it is. And that's enough for them. They don't need to read the books. They don't need to be analytical. They don't need to understand. That's enough for them to not want to support any critical race theory and any type of analysis. because. Who's, who's going to benefit from it by not by refusing to engage in those conversations, refusing to engage in those analysis, the, the preservation of white centrality remains, the preservation of white supremacy remains. So it, it is a self-interest to stand and take the positions that we're seeing in Texas. You know, and that's not operating out of shame. I mean, I do agree with part. I think there are, I think that individuals that actually have a conscience feel that shame. But I think a lot of these efforts are coming from particular individuals oh. that, that aren't operating out of shame. Let me, let me be They clear. know exactly what they're doing. Well, let me be clear. What, I'm, what I mean by the shame response is that is what the talking points and arguments are designed to try to... Um, uh, what's the word um, to subterfuge or well, well, to, to, to pull out. Right. So you have okay. to sail into the wind of something. If, and I have to have something that causes, causes a response and, and the rhetoric around quote unquote, making somebody feel ashamed. Right. Um, there are rooms I walk into to engage in discourse and folks will say that I was shaming before I even open my mouth and say my name is because of my racial identity and the subject matter of what we're about to talk to. So that shame response is what's being used to galvanize opposition erroneously. I mean, one of the tenets of critical race theory is a critique of liberal racism. So <laughs> one of the whole pieces, and, and, and again, critical race theory isn't a thing. It's a collection of scholarly articles from folks from various different political backgrounds, including conservative ones that are that are 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 actively in in putting their critical thinking caps on and exploring how race lives and ex- exists and experienced in the United States there is no denying that it's a factor and so to be scared of knowledge in this way has to have a galvanizing effect and the folks are are very intentionally using this idea or threat of being in a shaming um you know philosophy 
um, as its 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 sailing point and sticking point for folks, which is just untrue. But if I can if I can grab onto that, I can grab onto the emotional strings that are required to make this kind of rhetoric and talking point uh, project work. And their self interest is then preserved and guarded at the same time, right? Well, I, I think. There, there's some important pieces to call out here. Now, now, first and foremost, we started with talking about the, um, you know, to to your point, Don, earlier, around the burial grounds that were found in um, the Kamloop, um, Kamloops school. But we 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 can't push ourselves and be distant from that. We had boarding schools here in in the Midwest in Minnesota. Some of the the major ones that folks have many really heard about that have been really egregious, of course, are Carlisle in Pennsylvania. You've got um, Flandro Indian School in South Dakota. Although a lot of the 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 people who were sent there were were from um, Minnesota. Um, there are so many. Uh, examples of this. I mean, if you look at the list, uh, uh, Luce, you had a, a number earlier for for how many? Did you? Three hundred and sixty-seven, at least three hundred and sixty-seven boarding schools have been identified in the United States. So, so one of the things that I was able to do, and because uh, you know, my mother, my mother was sent to uh, the first boarding school she was sent to was uh, Pipestone. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of down around the Marshall, Minnesota area. Yeah. Um, and then after Pipestone, she was sent to uh, Flandreau, South Dakota. Gotcha. And um, so the Bureau of Indian Affairs actually uh, has a website, and I was able to go in on their website, and and uh, I forgot exactly what I did, but I was able to find my mother. Her brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, um, and all these other relations of my mom's that were that were uh, removed from the Malax area and sent to Pipestone. There's there's something chilling about seeing your mother's name listed along with your aunts and uncles. And all these other people that you you know their their uh, um, relations as being a member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians, there was something powerful about seeing that on a list on a computer. Um, I couldn't find one for Flandreau, but years ago, um, you know, I, I've also mentioned how. Um, that, you know, one of the other policies that were put in place to kind of, you know, because the purpose of, you know, the to kill the Indian and to, you know, to kill the Indian and save the man, it was decided that the best way to do that is you go through the children. Mm-hmm. And and so these boarding schools were created to, you know, like you, you, you mentioned earlier, to wipe out the language, wipe out the culture and replace it often with kind of a vocational type of, of education to make them farmers or mechanics or, you know, other kind of trade kind of things kind of in a sterile environment, much, you know, we hear how horrible it is for children who were raised in adoption agencies, for instance. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But what I was getting at is that there was also another policy because that wasn't working or speeding up the process. So they, the federal government then instituted the, the relocation program where, where natives were, re, were uh, enticed to move from the reservation to major metropolitan cities throughout the United States. And so I had some cousins who relocated to Los Angeles. Um, in my junior year in college, I drove to L.A. with my aunt, my mom's sister. And we were returning. She was returning to California to see a couple of her kids who had remained in California after she had moved back. Her husband had died. She returned to Minnesota, returned to the reservation, and a couple of her sons remained in L.A. So we drove out there, but on our return trip, she purposely had me drive through South Dakota till we came to Flandreau. And she kind of shared some little snippets and stories because her and my mother were at Flandreau together. So I actually saw Flandreau because she had me drive through there. And, and granted, it didn't look like it did when, you know, when they were in school there. But that was such a powerful moment, um, especially for my aunt to have me go there and, and uh, for her to see it after all those years. That was such um, a powerful thing. But, you know, it it it. All these events have kind of, you know, I, I had mentioned, I think, in one of our other podcasts that with COVID, um, with uh, the George Floyd, um, you know, the whole year with the George Floyd killing and then during the trial, then we have Dante, right? I mean, you know, I, I've, I, I know in community, a lot of people have been talking about um, meditation and and doing things to take care of your, your uh, well-being and, you know, your psyche. And, and I have to admit, you know, the, the past week or so with, with Tulsa, with the announcement of uh, the discovery of these, of, of these uh, young kids, uh, the onslaught of, uh, of these uh, efforts to restrict voting, the, the passage of legislation to, uh, um, not allow us to talk about how this country actually was, was brought about. I, you know, it, 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 it's had that kind of impact on me again. You know, when we first got together this evening, you know, I was kind of down in the dumps hmm. and uh, you know, it's, it, it just, it, it, it just kind of, it's like, it's like we have these heavy sacks on our back and every day in this country, something happens and they throw another nugget in there for us to haul around. Does that you know, make any as, sense? It does. And, and, and I wanted to just point out that folks might be listening, thinking, well, you know, so maybe there was one school in Minnesota, you know, as a boarding school back in the day. That's not true. Oh no. I was there looking it up. More. There were 16. Mm-hmm. There oh, were, yeah. Minnesota had 16 boarding schools that drew students from all 11 of our reservations here in Minnesota. And the earliest was White Earth Indian School that began in 1871. So think about that. 16 
boarding schools to make sure that they were able to capture and and take these children away, including your mom, from their loved ones, from their families, and put them into these schools under the guise of what? Becoming more, quote unquote, civilized, as if snatching children from their own families is somehow a civilized act to begin with. You know, there there are just so many wrongs to how they went about this and the fact that it that it occurred at all. And again, another part of history that most people living in the U.S. had no knowledge of, meaning they weren't taught this in history, you know, in schools. Still to this day, highly unlikely. And and I would venture to guess that many of our listeners, the first time they ever heard about boarding schools uh, with with our families here, would have been through the segments when we've discussed it. And and Don, to you know, to your credit, I mean, you've done most of that, right? And and we have, of course, chimed in. But your lived experiences are so critical in all of this. We you know we just continue to have this very um, filtered and, and, and whitewashed, for lack of a better word, version of history that protects a certain segment of our society, right? You, to the detriment you, of all of us. Have you ever um, seen the Jim, the Jim Thorpe movie? Have I've heard of it. Seen I, 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 I've seen, I, I, I know of it. I, I just haven't sat to watch it. Okay. And how but about let me you, finish Anthony? my point. Let me finish my point, Don, before we go on to that. When, when I think about what needs to change in the U.S., one of the biggest things that I think we could all benefit from in terms of our awareness and our children and generations thereafter is to ensure that the history books that have been in our schools for decades, if not you know, over a century, at least two centuries, is to have folks who actually are cognizant of all of these atrocities to put all of this content into the history books coming from K through 12 and beyond so that these pivotal moments in our history are not forgotten, but also that folks grow up with it. And so they are hopefully going to be our future generations less likely to be afraid of or shy away from critical race theory, because this is something that they would have at least had their eyes open early, early on in grade school through high school to enable them to understand that none of this is something that that their parents or grandparents learned, but that they as a new generation are able and empowered to act differently and to know better than what we grew up with. It, you know, th- there's, there's something really um, infuriating and I, and I know, we have, you know, it's if you are listening to counter stories, one of the things that we often do is talk about and critique um, 
not only policies and practices across the nation as it pertains to, to communities of color, but that critique is leveled um, <laughs> across all political ideologies because um, our experiences cross, cross them all. And so in this case, I have to very state very clearly that the perceived or, or generated attack on, on critical race theory as a thing, um, which on itself is, is just is, is problematic on, on so many levels, but it 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 connects to loose as you as you lay these these patterns out for us. Um, it, it connects to a centralizing mechanism that I think is happening across all is a through line for all of the massacres and traumas and atrocities, both the physical violent ones that we've already alluded to that have happened and that haven't happened, you know, that far away. I have ancestors who you're not even ancestors. There's one generation before me with experience to. Um, through Tulsa, but then, uh, or two generations before for me, but then this, this idea of wiping out. And I need to make it very clear that attempts to control um, the truth-telling of our own history, right, or to criminalize it in the way that these bills are trying to do, is a direct affront to my personage in the United States, right? This is not saying that there's this problematic thing that is being told that is untrue. It is saying this makes some folks feel uncomfortable and we don't like that. So we're going to sanitize history to remove the things that need, that are necessary for us to grow. Uh, and and for, for me to even be able to be in this, in, 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 in this country and have my truth in front of me. Uh, this is true from the boarding schools experience. This is true for, for Asian Americans throughout the United States, including Asian Americans that felt the backlash when, 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 when uh, a Chinese or a Japanese American person tried to sue to be reclassified racially, causing a whole lot of turmoil because it, it's ridiculous and it's socially constructed. Something that we know because critical race theory helps to tell that story. So, um, this isn't just a, a political thing for me. This is again an attempt to a, to erase uh, at erasure, which is some a through line for all of the experiences that we've talked about so far, all the way back to Louisiana Purchase, where we have Mexican folks whose border crossed them that have lived there for years before um, before the political boundary crossed them and socially constructed them into some other generations, right? And then you have a soft cleanse, uh, not even a soft cleansing. I can't even say that word, but you have another attempt at wiping out to say that is no longer your history. You're not part of this country. That is no longer, if, if you like it so much, why don't you move to your own country? And they're like, we've been here for generations. There, there have been consistent attempts. This is not something that's new. This is a pattern that goes back hundreds of years in this country. And yet now, in this quote-unquote modern era, we have folks putting forward legislature, legislation that is continuing that pattern of erasure. I, that, that is assaulting to my personage. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to, all I was trying to interject earlier was just to give a lighthearted example. And, you know, I think in the 50s or 60s, there was a movie put together called Jim Thorpe, right? Oh, and yeah, All American. Jim Thorpe, All American, right? Yep. Exactly. And and if you, you know, and I, I would assume that I, as well as many others of the baby boom generation, saw that movie. With Burt Lancaster as its lead. <laughs> as, as Jim Thorpe, of course. Uh, but that was, you know, Thorpe was sent to Carlisle. 
And Carlisle was one of the first boarding schools created, right? And created mm-hmm. for a particular purpose. Nowhere in that movie were you ever told about why Jim Thorpe or why the rest of those Indians were at Carlisle. I never learned that um, through watching that movie. I never learned that in, 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 uh, in, my, in all the time that I went through high school. Uh, when I started questioning that in college, I was told that, you know, I've shared this story. I was told by my history teacher that if you want to study about American Indian history, or we study history from the perspective of those who conquered, not those who were vanquished. <laughs> and if I, that's exactly what she said. Mm. And, and if I wanted to learn about American Indian history, I needed to take an early American history class. Well, McAllister in 1972 didn't offer that. Mm. Right. But I'm just saying, so that is how our, this history is whitewashed that it, it's omitted. It's, it, it, it didn't talk about the creation of Carlisle and the Jim Thorpe story. It talked about how great Jim Thorpe was um, played by a white guy. Uh, but you know, it didn't, it, it was there, but it was omitted purposely omitted. And so you know, even when we just talk about the history, we, we can talk about the history of what, what this country did. It has nothing to do with critical race theory, right? right. We can just talk about the history and we can just name these incidences. Um, it's they're trying to buckle our hands to kind of connect them all together, right? To, to uh, you know, uh, trying to prevent this from being able to connect this concurrent pattern of the dominant culture in its attempt to prevent any group of color, indigenous, black, you name it, any, any, any group other than uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, European Americans who came to this country um, from having a piece of this pie. You know, Don, you're absolutely right. And, and the other aspect that I want to, add on to your your point of view is that, that as the number of non-whites the population grows in the US the threat becomes ever so much <laughs> more urgent for them right it, it used to be 10 years ago 15 years ago that 2050 was the year that the US would be majority bipoc black indigenous people of color right then it went from 2050 to 20, 20, uh, 21. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Let me backtrack. Used to be that the the date by which the majority of population in the U.S. was going to be BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, would have been the year of 2050. And then from 2050, it went to, well, 2047. And then it went to 2045. That number continues to decrease. The last figure I saw recently was close between 2035 and 2040. So within our lifespan, as we sit around this table, so to speak, right, the more that threat becomes imminent, the tighter we're going to see these clamping down of all of these measures, right? Because the fear, of course, is that 
we as BIPOC will begin to unite together, which we really, really, it's long overdue, right? And, and, and have the voting blocks that we should be having and have the leadership that we are entitled to and, and, and. I mean, there's cities around the country already that are majority BIPOC, you know, and, and, and we begin to see this tidal wave of population. We know that within the Asian community, the average age is in its 20s. In the Latinx community, similarly speaking, we're in the 20s as well, which means higher birth rates, lower death rates. Contrast that with the white population, the average age is 15 to 20 years older, which is less childbearing age and higher death rates. So when we when we look at this, there's there is a real fear that is being, you know, that's behind so many of these efforts, but no one is speaking about it out loud necessarily. But we all know that, right? We know that given our roles in our community and our knowledge of what the population trends are. You know, I, I have to add on to that just, you know, to, to borrow from you. Yes. And so I'm going to add on to that uh, as well. Um, you know, I think there's also um, a misnomer in the way that this rhetoric and these talking points get out because there are people who um, have conservative mindsets of liberal mindsets, whatever the political perspective you want to put on there that are actually have no problem with having a, a higher degree of racial consciousness. We actually see this out of um, younger white students as well, who still have, um, you know, are across the entire political perspective, but have no problem with being real and critical um, about our real lived history. I, I think one of the things that is in here is a little bit of a, a little sense of gaslighting. That's the only reason that these are these these bills are working in the way they are is because people are being gaslit to think that this that critical race theory one is something that it's not two is even a thing. It's a collection of scholarly, you know, it's something that we've coined for a collection of scholarly articles that have been around for for a while and that many people have have vetted and and and, and discussed. It's not new. I would also say that you will know the movements by their fruit. I have a uh, you know Christian faith background, right? You will know them by their fruits. The fruits of a critical racial consciousness is a move towards a more just and equal and fervent society, all right? The fruits of omitting history are really only about preservation from a fear-based thing that's often based in no reality whatsoever. And so I think that's something important for folks to understand, that there are white folks across the country who have no problem, one, with critical race theory or any critical consciousness around race, and um, that have it as part of their everyday lived experience and are resisting this move itself. So I think that's an important thing to know to speak to the gaslighting that is really at the heart of a lot of these attempts and talking points that that go out. And so if you're wondering you know, about it, I think you'll know it by its fruit. Being real about history produces better movement. And, and you know, to your Jim Thorpe comment, Don, um, <laughs> there's a scene in that movie where Jim goes on a long run because of fun, frustration or whatever and runs past the coach. I can't remember the coach's name. Pop or something like that. Pop Warner. Yeah, Pop Warner. And sees him running and he outruns, like, somebody in the team, right? Folks, you may have <laughs> listeners 
Go back and look at the movie Forrest Gump. That's exactly what happens in Forrest Gump. Yes. He gets chased by bullies. So they're actually borrowing from a cultural asset. And so you have two movies that that have a reference to, to Jim Thorpe that have nothing to do with the real indigenous history of Jim Thorpe. So I just, I think it's finding it fascinating that if we continue in the route of omission, we're going to end up having connections uh, to in, even in our classic movie scenes that we have no understanding has a racialized connection. That's a problem. Well, you know, Anthony, I think you just did a very good job of kind of capitalizing and, and, and wrapping up this, this discussion. You know, I, I, the only thing I would add is that, you know, three, four years ago, we did a, we did a podcast on the Browning of America. Um, and we talked about that very subject, but that by 2040, there would be a uh, 60% um, BIPOC, 40%, but, you know, whites would still be the largest majority. And then after going through this previous presidency, I couldn't help but feel that the one thing we didn't talk about in that podcast was the reaction that we could possibly see. We kind of skirted around it a little bit, I think, but, you know, to me, the uh, election of this previous president, um, in my mind, I thought uh, I didn't have a hard time thinking that it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction to the Browning of America to have this extreme, this extreme pendulum swing, because for years, I think, you know, while we still have all these racial reckonings that need to happen in this country for us to totally heal. And I'm talking about every, every BIPOC population in the United States, there needs to be some kind of racial reckoning across the board for how this country has treated us um, since they got off the boats here. Right. What do they call themselves? Settlers? Is, is that a, I think they call themselves settlers or something like that. Anyways, there needs to be some kind of recognition. Um, and I thought we, this country was moving in that direction until this last, you know, the previous election. And it swung us way back. It swung us back to a time period that we were studying about in history. Right. Even though it's an ongoing thing, it wasn't that blaring and blatant. And so, you know, I still have faith in this country because it's hard for me to put my head on a pillow every night thinking that I live in a country that does not recognize my humanity. And, and if I was to, you know, think about that every night that I lay my head in my pillow, um, I wouldn't be able to go to sleep, you know, and, 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 and so I don't dwell on that, but I'm just saying that's what it's like for us in this country. I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros, cultural consultant, and a member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've made are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of Arts Us and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. 
This program is co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Amphers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.